Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Faced with an impossible situation, it can be hard to know how to respond. Should one fight, surrender, or choose a third way? Maybe the answer is not to destroy, but create. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and Helter Skelter, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion covers the 1969 World War I satirical musical, Oh What a Lovely War!, based on the stage production directed by Richard Attenborough and featuring an ensemble cast including John Mills, Laurence Olivier, Maggie Smith, Dirk Bogart, Vanessa Redgrave and Susanna York. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in the rotting hulk of a pleasure palace. Hello, Chris. Hello. Um, Now, we were talking a, a little while ago about the background to today's film. So, with that in mind, how did World War I start? (laughs) <laughs> that's a dirty trick um, if I'd known I was going to have to do homework well I, I, I tried researching it anyway because I don't like everybody else that was alive at the time I don't understand the causes of the First World War I know that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot and then it just seems to be a network of treaties and something about plucky little Belgium um, and then I don't know then everybody's fighting the death of Franz Ferdinand was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. And, listener, we, we were actually talking about this earlier and how Chris didn't really understand after his research why the war started, which so, mm. yeah, was quite a mean trick to play. No, um, no, it's fine. But, it's, uh, I, I was, well, one of the things I was saying was I read a book, I think, called Ring of Steel, which came very highly recommended to me as, as being effectively the story of the First World War from the, from the German side. And after Chapter One, I just... I bailed because I still didn't understand. The Austro-Hungarians were there and there was something about Serbia and the Prussians. Uh, Yeah. Europe seemed at the time to have been a continent of empire builders. Mm. And the tensions that existed between the different empires overruled the fact that most of these royal families were intermarried and interrelated. Um, Britain... Germany, France, France not so much as it was a republic, but still Austro-Hungary, Russia, at the very top level, it was all interconnected and it was one almost continental royal family. Mm. In fact, wasn't it during the First World War that the royal family changed their name from the Saxe-Cobergs to the Windsors? I believe so, yes. Um, But it was the, the politicians and the generals that were the empire builders. They were the ones who are the the more insular patriots rather than uh, extending friendship to relatives over the sea. Um, And despite what our government has said, I think it is a good idea to look towards Blackadder for a concise um, uh, definition of why the war started, and it's simply because it was too much difficulty not to have a war. Yeah. something Something was going to happen eventually. The ice was going to break. 
and it was the Archduke of, of Austria-Hungary being shot by a Serbian anarchist. That was enough. And before long, war was being declared. It was too late for uh, ruling families to step in. There was risks of losing face. And before you knew it, the earth was like a ploughed field uh, with 30 million dead people inside. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the sense, isn't it? There's a, I, I remember... I went to obviously I, I went to one of those schools that had a collection of punch uh, annuals, sort of, sort of all bound up. And at some point, I remember looking through them because I used to like looking at the the cartoons. And I'm sure there was one particular cartoon of a group of generals sitting around a table, and one of them is saying to the others, "Gentlemen, what if we held a war and everybody came?" Mm. And that's kind of the attitude I sort of feel it was at the start of the First World War. It was just come on in, the war's lovely. Well, exactly. With that in mind, had you previously seen Oh, What a Lovely War? No. It, it's Funnily enough, it's one of those ones that I'd sort of only ever heard of in the, uh, in the, in the kind of the adjacent context of the stage play. I used to really like a writer called Michael Green who wrote a few books called like The Art of Course Rugby and Course Golf, but he did one called The Art of Course Acting as well, which was really just a collection of terrible sort of old theatrical anecdotes. And he writes about uh, a stage production of Oh, What a Lovely War, where I think it's the scene where the soldiers come back to Waterloo and everybody started to try to build up their part. And it starts off with somebody going, oh, I'm going to walk with a limp. And somebody else then says, oh, I'm going to have a head injury. And somebody else says, oh, can I have my arm bandaged? And by the time it actually got to the dress rehearsal, the stage was just this chorus line of kind of gibbering wrecks as everybody tried to out, outplay everybody else. And that's, that's it. No, not one I'd ever heard of before, or not one I've ever seen before at all. Well, it's something that seems to have slipped into obscurity a little. I think because the, the stage play, the stage production by Joan Littlewood at Stratford East had been so hugely acclaimed, it actually ran on Broadway, Mm. Uh, for a time, it was nominated for four Tony Awards uh, and won one for Victor Spinetti and also nominated in a role that was played in the film by Maggie Smith, Barbara Windsor. Oh, OK. You don't think of Barbara Windsor, particularly, and I think this was pre-Carry On, being yeah. a Tony nominee. No. It feels like, I mean, certainly the film, um, and obviously we'll get into this probably a bit later, but the film weirdly... It seems it feels like it throws quite a long shadow because I kept watching it and there's little bits where it's like this kind of feels like the the roots of a Monty Python. There's one particular bit we'll get to later where they're all sitting in a crater having a conversation and it feels like the roots of a couple of Monty Python sketches. So I wonder whether at the time this this must have been a film that cast a very long shadow. It was a commercial hit in the UK and was nominated for nine BAFTAs. Mm. Winning five, um, but yes, it, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have had much long-term impact. I think it, it struck a chord at the time because it was so. It's so angry, mm. and it's so uh, condemning of the the laissez-faire attitude of leadership at the time. Of oh, we can we can just throw men into this mincing machine until the gears seize up. Yeah. And I think 
in the seventies that was probably chiming with the time. In the eighties, with the resurgence in um, right wing politics and nationalism, that would have fallen very much out of favour. Mm. Right, I suppose the and, and now the wheel has turned, and I think I think now it would be very much in tune again. Fifty years yeah. after the film was made, and a hundred years after it's set. Yes, I think as well. It's it's a ter- that most films have a sorry most films most wars. There's a sort of period of reflection, isn't there? So it it feels at times like people didn't sort of start talking about Vietnam until the eighties, um, but you were getting second world war films that were made in the late 60s that were sort of talking about vietnam indirectly so there always seems to be a bit of a sort of 20 or 30 year lag before people sort of seriously start to talk about stuff but of course in the case of the first world war um that 20 year lag would have put it right in the middle of the second world war so maybe it was just one of those maybe sort of socially there was just never the opportunity to go back and reappraise it at the time not not in this way. I mean, there was material in the, the late 20s, like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front or Journey's mm. End, yeah, which have a, a similar attitude to Oh, What a Lovely War, but is exp- it's expressed in a much more conventional, dramatic form. Um, but I think the, the satire of, of Oh, What a Lovely War couldn't have existed... I mean... Think about when the uh, Lord Chancellor's office ceased to have to approve plays. That was mm. about the time, maybe a year or two, before the play was first mounted. I think so. In fact, I think... Uh, yeah, sorry, I've got the... Uh, I remember looking through the Wikipedia page for the musical, and it actually says that the official censor did not grant permission for a transfer to the West End until the royal family got involved. Princess Margaret apparently attended a performance and said to the Lord Chamberlain that, oh, they should have given it permission to transfer to London long ago. And, of course, so it immediately did. Um, Oh, and then the next line, it goes on. At this point, the transfer was more or less assured, despite the objections of the family of Field Marshal Haig. Well... who'd, Who'd have thought they'd have something to say against it? Yeah, given that Haig is the closest thing the film has to a an embodied human villain... Hmm... And played by played by John Mills, who was uncredited producer of the movie and instrumental in getting it made. Um, there's a commentary on the DVD by Richard Attenborough, and it's not a great commentary, but he does say that without John Mills, the film would never have even come close to happening. That he was instrumental in getting it lifted from the stage and to screen, and getting money together and and signing up all the the extraordinary cast. Mm. I think this film has more knights of the realm or dames of the realm than almost any other film I've ever seen. It's an astonishing cast, isn't it? And all the way through, um, you've got... It's just it's, it's one of those films that's packed full of, oh, my God, it's him from that and it's her from... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Even down to some of the thoroughly minor parts, I'd kind of be looking at the background of scenes and go, hang on a minute, I know that that face yeah yeah it's a it's an it's an amazing cast isn't it um dirk bogard john gielgud jack hawkins kenneth moore Lawrence olivier michael redgrave vanessa redgrave ralph richardson maggie smith Susanna york and john mills in the sort of major star roles uh ian holm david lodge uh nanette newman 
Anthony Ainley, Michael Bates, yes. Edward Fox, Peter Gilmore, um, and briefly and uncredited, Jane Seymour. Oh, really? Where did she crop up? She's one of the chorus girls in the theatre. I mean, the one that really threw me was um, there's one particular sequence where it's when they're out, they're all outside sitting by a cart and somebody says, go on, do your Charlie Chaplin impression. Um, one of the soldiers sitting in a cart is a guy called Dudley Stevens, who I only recognise because he's in a, an LWT series called End of Part One. And I'm sure that it's him, uh, but again, completely uncredited. Well, the the film... The, well, it's a good opportunity to go into the the way the film's credits work. Mm. The um, well, firstly, one I mean, the film started out as a radio play uh, by Charles Chilton called "The Long Long Trail." Chilton had been a, a long-running radio producer, had worked on The Goon Show, had been instrumental in Journey into Space, developed this radio play, which was transmuted into the stage show, and then which turned into the film, and. The screenwriter of the film is not credited. It's Len Dayton. Yeah, that's a real surprise, isn't it? Author of the the unnamed spy novels, who'd be named as Harry Palmer in the, the film versions. Um, Dayton at the time apparently decided he wasn't going to be credited because he was annoyed with people taking credit for work they hadn't done. So he was going to make a stand by not taking credit for adapting this stage play into a film script but the level of adaptation is such that he would be fully justified <laughs> in, yeah. t- in taking that credit and apparently he did regret not doing that later on mm. annoyingly Richard Attenborough <laughs> never talks about the script <laughs> <laughs> um, on, the, on the commentary he either talks about uh, uh, describing what's on screen explaining what's on screen which is fairly clear to anyone or uh. or talking about uh, the war itself. Okay. So he doesn't give a, a great deal of useful background info. That's a shame. Yeah. It's not like they can go back and do it again now. No, no, certainly um, not. But the opening titles are very much in the same style as the Dayton book covers of these objects filmed against a white background. Yeah. Um, so over the soundtrack, we have an overture of a medley of songs uh, from the film. And we have these still shots of patriotic items like medals, um, uh, commemorative mugs, flags. And it sort of gradually cycles through to military uniforms, guns, man traps, barbed wire, uh, a human skull... Mm. And then the final directing credit is over a shot of a poppy. Yes, it's rather like the sort of the the, the film itself. It gradually gets more military, you know, it gets more militaristic, and then just a bit more and more sort of nasty and unpleasant in a way, doesn't more, it? Yes, I'd forgotten yeah. about the man trap, which is not something that comes back in the film itself, but it, and doesn't seem like a practical weapon. But it's just this, this is the level that it's going to be working at. Mm. And then that's followed by a disclaimer saying that the real characters as depicted in the film will be speaking with their actual words. Yes, um, yeah, because it's a mixture of uh, the sort of the crowned heads of Europe, isn't it? And then um, a fictional family. It's it's three. It's the crowned heads of Europe and the military top mm. brass, the home front of um, 
wealthy people, and the Smith family, who are this all-purpose every family, um, who we whom we follow over the course of the film. The film starts with various aristocratic figures meeting in a ballroom in a kind of white void, very theatrical. Yes, um, and. They're all acknowledging that there's there are international tensions, but no one really thinks there's going to be a war. No one really thinks anything serious is going to happen. And until a photographer gathers them all together to take a photograph, and he hands poppies to the two at the centre of the picture, who are the Archduke and Archduchess of Austria-Hungary. And, he, yeah. and the photographer actually turns and looks right into the camera and smiles. Yes, he's one of the few people that knows he's in a film, isn't he? Yeah, he's he recurs throughout the film, and he's none of the. I mean, there, there are no character names ascribed in the credits, but he's never given a name either. He's just the photographer, and he's a very sinister figure, because as you say, he's he's the one who knows this is a movie, and he's the one who knows how horrible this is. But he's still cheerily jollying everything on. Well, he's I, also, in a weird sort of way, he's almost the character that he's responsible for most of the deaths, isn't he? Because he, he understands that you give people poppies and uh, and they die. Yeah. And I think he, he personally takes out quite a few people. He's played, of course, by a guy called Joe... Mal- is it Malia? Melia. Melia. Who I only knew previously as... Um, the man from the council in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series. Yeah. Um, but who turns out... It's, what by one of those strange coincidences within the last six weeks or so, I've suddenly been exposed to the far reaches of his career because he turned up in an episode of Public Eye that I'd recorded, where again he plays a song and dance man, and of course then he's suddenly in this as well, and it's just that odd thing of seeing somebody that I think if you'd asked me based on just seeing him as Mr. Prosser in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I would have assumed he was a bit of a bit part actor but no a, 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 a wide and very very varied career and a frightening shark like grin that's the other thing isn't it yeah so as he takes the photograph uh, the two people slowly fall to the ground and that then sets the tone that we will never see there's no blood no anywhere in the film and that's quite a brilliant choice instead instead of seeing characters die they they are given or take poppies. Mm. So the fallout from the the assassination is that Count uh, Berthold goes to the uh, em- Austro-Hungarian Emperor, I think. Friends, hang on a minute. Yes, yes. I think. Yes, <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. We're we're just getting confused over the causes of the First World War again. I'm trying to check my notes and check other things at the same time. Um, Franz Josef the First is played by Jack Hawkins. Mm and claims that there have been skirmishes on the border with Serbia. So he pushes him to uh, sign a declaration of war. And John Gielgud does all the talking in the scene. Jack Hawkins doesn't speak. But after he's signed it, he starts weeping. Yeah. That scene was rewritten to remove all of Hawkins' dialogue because he'd had his larynx removed. Oh. Um famously or not so famously in the late 60s he was diagnosed with throat cancer which apparently advanced so quickly that his entire larynx was surgically removed and for the rest of his career he was dubbed by Charles Gray (laughs) Um, he had a six or seven more films or so and then years later 
um, when Lawrence of Arabia was being restored, um, several of the actors had to come back and, and revoice their parts. So Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole mm. came back. Hawkins had long since died. So, um, so Charles Gray was brought back to to dub his dialogue again in a way that that matched because the two happened to have very yeah. similar voices. No, I, I've got to say, I, I, I just assumed it was an artistic choice rather than a practical one. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's a, it's a it's a terrible reason for for that sequence being filmed the way it does. But it's it's surprisingly effective. It it keeps it simple, mm. particularly then when uh, Count Berthold leaves the office and and goes outside and says, "Well, actually, you know, there was there was no attack. I lied." Yeah. And I, again, I, as I say, I, I assume that this is all more or less, I'm going to historically accurate, that that there was some deception about whether what what the Serbians were up to. Uh, I I don't know. As I say, I got I stalled on the causes of Belgian neutrality and things like that. So uh, I've no idea what was going on on the other side of Europe at the same time. I think it it, it suggests that the. The, arist- the, uh, the upper aristocratic class and the royal families were quite happy with the status quo, mm. but it was the politicians and the generals who were the empire builders. Yeah, yeah. They were the ones manipulating power. Um, the photographer reappears and tells us to take our places for the ever-popular war game with songs, battles, and a few jokes. Yes, so- and then it starts to look a little bit like um, a live-action version of Risk, doesn't it? Because all the various... Uh, people go and stand on their respective countries, and then there's a sort of vague quadrille as they move around slightly. And the, you know, some people will talk. The the it's either the German, it's either the Kaiser's representative or the Russian one has a conversation, and then sort of moves over to the east of the board. Um, yeah, it's again, it's 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 effective. I mean, it's obviously incredibly stylized, and you can kind of you can definitely see its roots as a as a stage play. Um, various manoeuvres take place and it's it's too late to stop them, it's too late to countermand them, you risk losing face if if you pull back. Uh, the line comes in about the maps being rolled up all over Europe. Oh, yes, of course, that makes sense. Um, from Sir Edward Grey, played by mm. Ralph Richardson. But yes, as you say, ultimately you just come back to the Black Adder line, don't you? That it just seems like it was too much effort not to go to war. Yeah, and uh, a photo is taken of people with a, a basket of poppies, mm. and we cut to Brighton Beach. Um, almost the entirety of the location work, in fact, pretty much all the location work, was filmed in and around Brighton. Mm. Um, but it's a lovely, busy day, and the Grenadiers band is marching on the beach, performing the title song, getting everyone excited as they approach a pier with a fantastic illuminated sign over the entrance saying World War One." Yes. And this is where the, the, the film's metaphors <laughs> really start to kick into gear. Yes, because the ticket office is like Kaiser and Haig or something, isn't it? And uh, in its general, Haig is selling tickets to the war. Um... There's also a moment where in the background you can actually see modern tower blocks. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah, these, is... these sorts of things happen occasionally. It does, yeah. And the fact that it's not meant to be a, a realistic depiction kind of fudges the whole thing. But it does mm. underline how, although this is depicting real events, it's timeless. Yeah. Um, 
you could you could almost have this set in a, a mixture of period and present day detail and it would make the the point of the story feel relevant and it's it is just uh, an error that's hard to correct but it does have that sort of almost subconscious twist to it i i feel mm. um yes they're buying tickets for the war which is like like a recruitment drive really yeah um with the whole family buying tickets and the mum buying a ticket and all going this... on all going on to the pier for a lovely day at the war and they're all they're all giving their name and this and it's possible I was just being a bit slow on the uptake, but because the family is called Smith, I didn't realise they were supposed to all be the same family. What you get, obviously, is you get a line of people that come up to the ticket office and give their name as sort of Smith A, and then they take it to Smith Arthur J, and that sort of thing, as if they're on a military pay parade or something like that. Um, but, of course, because it's the UK's most common surname, I just assumed that it was a... I don't know really what I assumed, but I never realised they were all the same family. And I think it might have made it a little bit clearer to me if they could have had a slightly more distinctive surname, because at least I would have picked up on it more quickly. Well, the notion of them being called Smith is to give them the idea of them being mm. an everyman family, an every family, yeah. in a sense. I mean, and that's true, I suppose. I wouldn't have wanted them to be called... <sighs> What's the film? It's Things to Come, isn't it? Where it's set in every town. And oh that's yeah, just a bit clunkingly obvious. So yeah, having them called the Everyman Family would have been just a little bit too, too obvious. I would have settled for a family I don't know called uh, the Whites or the Cooks or something, but just something other than Smith because, yeah, it, that that really threw me. I don't. I think I got all the way through the film and didn't realise they were all supposed to be the same family. Something like Smith that uh, is symbolic of working class. Yeah, because because th- think about where the name comes from. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's good that they didn't go with Thatcher, of course. But yeah. <laughs> well, because you said cook, and I thought, well, yeah, yeah, like a, like a servant. Yeah, or could have gone with York or Windsor. Might have, but I suppose Windsor might have been a bit too on the nose. I think by then it would have been a bit too on the nose. Yeah. Also, Barbara Windsor having been in the play as well. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but there are all kinds of attractions on the pier, um, like throwing around the hot potato, which I assume is it's either a satirical jab at something like either the hot potato of war or it's just something that people did in 1914. I think it could be either, but I, I think the film lays out its stall fairly early on that everything's a symbol for something or other. Uh, and after a while, it, it starts to feel like you can you can almost decode that, that this is a this is a collection of symbols. It's like the it's like the Da Vinci Code or something, and you can just you could disassemble it. No, I think I read the hot potato was being, uh, yeah, just symbolic of yeah. Here it is. You've got it now. You pass it on. And so yes, who knows? It's trouble in some form, isn't it? In the same way that there's a there's a shooting gallery. Mm. And I think, well, yeah, shooting gallery at a sideshow, fine. But the winners of the shooting gallery are handed uniform. In fact, the winners and lo- everybody wins Everyone, the prize, yeah. don't they? Yeah. The prize is um, the king's shilling. But at one of the sideshows, there's a little merry-go-round of puppets. And then we get mm. the first major song of the film, which is Belgium Put the Kibosh on the Kaiser, um, with, led by Jean-Pierre Cassel quite a big name, mm. 
and we watch this little merry-go-round as it goes, as it turns, and it transitions to real of all these soldiers on a merry-go-round on a hillside singing this song. Um, Belgium put the kibosh on the Kaiser. Europe took the stick and made him sore. On his throne it hurts to sit, and while John and when John Ball starts to hit, he will never sit upon it any more. And it's all very bumptious and upbeat and patriotic. Yes. Until it slows down and there's an explosion, and we transition back to the pier and all the puppets are slumped and broken as the merry-go-round comes to a stop and we hear the news that Brussels has fallen to Germany and that the uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel's officer character has been wounded. Yeah, sorry. I, I was a bit. I, I was trying to work out whether to mention this or not, but I've, I've started now, so I will, I will finish. There's a, in, when Alexis Sale did his series Stuff, one of the episodes ends with a song called Hooray for British Films, which this whole sequence immediately struck a chord with me because from memory, the Hooray for, the Hooray for British Films sequence is also filmed on top of the South Downs, so you've got the same kind of view in the background. But of course, the song that Alexis Sale is singing is about how dreadful British <laughs> films are and how, you know... Uh, people take them but you know it's only they're, they're, they're only made because they're funded by the Arts Council and stuff it's almost certainly on YouTube if you want to look it up but I had this slightly uncomfortable gear change between watching the Belgian soldiers on the carousel and remembering Alexis Sale at the same time and then it leads into um, don't we see the the aftermath of the battle as well yeah the, the, film's, yeah. the film then does the first of transitions from as you say, the symbolic world to a reasonably realistic depiction mm. of of the theatre of war itself, where we see a horse wandering from wandering across the lines, and the being letters sent home, and it and it compares the two environments that on that there's this de- horrible devastation and death yeah. on on both sides of the wire. So straight from the off, it's avoiding taking a side. It's it's yeah. focusing on the British experience because it's a British film, and it's it's easier to do that to convey the story. But it's also saying it was the same for the others as well. Yeah, they have their own very very similar story. But um, the family goes into the theatre on the pier, which is packed, and it's not the, the pier theatre. I don't think the actual it wasn't okay. fil- it wasn't filmed in the pier theatre. I think it was filmed in the. East Pier, the one that's still standing, right? Because the West Pier burnt down, I think, about 1990. Yes, well, I know that there was was it Brighton Pier at one point that I think Brighton Pier caught fire. They, they, it caught fire once, and they liked it so much that they it caught fire again. Was, <laughs> I, I'm sure there's footage, although I might be getting it mixed up with Margate Pier. That at one point they called in the Royal Engineers to try to blow one of them up, and it turned out the bloody thing was so well constructed it was demolition proof but i couldn't tell you off the top of my head if that was brighton pier or somewhere else it might well be brighton pier because the steel skeleton of the pier is still standing mm. um and obviously it's an, a fantastically dangerous structure yes, yes. This, this hulk of um of rotting metal standing only about 100 yards offshore <laughs> off, whole, off, off, off one of the UK's most popular public beaches there's a whole mysterious tradition considering that piers spend 100% of their time surrounded by water they go on fire an awful lot it's really odd I, I think they're usually electrical fires well yeah that's true because all, because all the electricity has to come from the land it can't come up through the ground Yeah. Um, so they, it's very easy for them to get cut off like that I think hmm. 
But uh, they go to the theatre and we get another song, Are We Downhearted? Yeah. No. And at the moment, this is all. What, what's interesting, and you, you don't you, you don't notice it until later on. But the songs we've all had so far are very much the songs for the home front. So the Belgian put the kibosh on the Kaiser, and the sort of are we downhearted? These are the songs for the audience at home, being told what a great war it is. Again, come on in the war's lovely. Um, it's when you get the soldiers' songs coming in later; they're all considerably different in tone. Yeah, um, and he, yes, this is Maggie Smith, isn't it? And she sings about how every day she walks out with a different man in uniform. Yes, using sex as uh, an mm. advertising aid. So yes, yes, she'll make a man of them and stuff. Yeah. On Sunday, I walk out with a soldier. On Monday, I'm taken by a tar. On Tuesday, I'm out with a baby boy scout. On Wednesday, a huzzah. On Thursday, <laughs> I gang out with a Scotty. On Friday, a captain of the crew. But on Saturday, I'm willing, if you'll only take the shilling, to make a man of any one of you. And this is the song that Barbara Windsor performed on Broadway. I can imagine that she would have been really good at this. Um, and the way it's performed is Maggie Smith is you know, wearing this beautiful dress and with this hair very elaborate and looking very elegant. And gradually men start to come up the stage and they're shown into the wings mm. and one of the Smith bro- brothers comes up on stage and as he gets close to her um, I think I've, I've written some, very uncharitably um, that she looks like an over made up old harridan <laughs> yeah She's, it's, it's all but having the, the fag in the corner of the mouth I don't think I picked up on this but uh, I know but, I can again I can kind of see that thing that that again it's all terribly symbolic isn't it and it's and it's very glamorous and lovely from a distance and when when you get up close you realize it's 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 not as nice as you thought yeah um so they they handed their uniforms and they're immediately being drilled mm. and shipped straight uh, and dragged into a truck and sent off to fight in Mons yes and then there's a very striking jump cut isn't there where it goes from are they they're just talking backstage and the sergeant is talking backstage and does it cut in the middle of his line i think it so, does yeah 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 it's very, very again very very striking i don't know who sorry i've got uh, just just having a quick look at wikipedia it says here that it was edited by a guy called kevin connor um who oh he worked for milton sabotsky a lot so he did the land that time forgotten at the Earth's core and warlords of Atlantis, but obviously he did some he did some good work as well. Well, he graduated into uh, directing, and um, seems to have done a lot of TV movies and uh, miniseries. Yeah, um, but then we get our first glimpse of some of the uh, field commanders, um, Sir John French and Sir Henry Wilson, played by Laurence Olivier and Michael Redgrave. Hmm. And it's already showing the lack of cooperation and lack of concern with allies. French is obviously very poorly prepared. He's not listening to advice, and oh. and ignorant of cooperation with uh, the allies on the Western Front. Yeah, and this is isn't this what there's an exchange about? They haven't bothered to bring a translator with them or something. Yeah, yeah. In the commentary, Attenborough notes what a funny performance Olivier gives as Sir John French and how, how hilariously funny his performance is. And I thought, this is not funny. 
No, that's the trouble, isn't it? It's not. It, the, 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 this is the class. This is a very, very satirical film. It, it's not funny. No, it's. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's 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 like the joke about Shakespeare's play. Series. You know, it's comedy because it's got a joke in it. Yeah. This is this is not a, this is satire, but it's not comedy. No. Um, and although Olivier is definitely giving a very Olivier performance in that he's got a big moustache and a ruddy face and is doing an accent um, and doing all the acting things that he's mm. so famous for, and he was BAFTA nominated for his performance, um, it's it's not a funny performance. It's a it's a dark, brutal caricature yeah. of a man who was utterly callous and hopelessly unprepared. Now, yeah. Thinking about recent events, who does that remind you of? A weird sort of caricatured public figure whose negligence and criminal irresponsibility has called the deaths of tens of thousands of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I say, we've got such a, an array of choice at the moment, but yeah, it's... Um... Remember how I said the film was timeless? It's not just yeah. about war. No, it's not necessarily just about warfare, is it? Sadly. Hmm... At the shooting gallery, the, the, the prize for everyone, as you say, was is a, a, a new uniform. Yes. And uh, the old soldiers giving advice to the uh, the new recruits, even though the old soldier presumably would have fought at you know, the Battle of Omdurman. God knows. I mean, at this point, it would have been Mafeking. Mafeking was... The, the Sudan campaign. Yeah, it would have been... Um, ugh, I've managed to forget his name now. Boy Corporal, Scouts. Corporal Jones. Oh, uh, Ki- what, oh, Kitchener. Was that Kitchener again? Who was the founder of the Scouts movement? His oh, Baden Powell. Baden Powell, that was it, yeah. And it would have been, because you had Churchill as well, didn't you? You had the Boer War and Churchill was out there trying to make a name for himself. And, yeah. Um, and, of course, as it's... it's the, 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 sorry, this, this is going off on a slight tangent, but, of course, the comment that I've seen made before was that everybody assumed that the First World War was just going to be some glorious cavalry campaign. If they'd looked across the Atlantic to the American Civil War, they would have actually seen what it was going to be like. But who cared what was going on over there? Exactly. You don't learn from other people's mistakes, let alone your own. No. It's odd, actually, because I was looking up the other day and I found that the last uh, widow of an American Civil War veteran died in December 2020. That's astonishing, isn't it? She married, I... the, ve- she married the veteran when he was in his early 90s and she was in her teens because her oh. family did um, chores for him and this was his way of repaying her by marrying her, thus that she could receive his, his, his pension. Huh. Although she never actually claimed it because um, his family said that they would ruin her if she did. Oh, well, that was... They sound very nice. Yeah, they sound great. I'm going to now assume that they were Confederates, in which case to hell with them. No, Union. Oh, really? Oh, God. <laughs> They're supposed to be the good guys. Well, well, yeah, it doesn't mean that... Just because they were, in theory, opposed to slavery doesn't mean that they weren't shits in other ways. No, this is true. Um, but I, I got onto that because I was... Um, Looking up Harry Patch. Oh yes, yeah. As as the listener may know, Harry Patch was the last surviving combat veteran of World War One, and he died in July two thousand nine. And I find his story very interesting because 
he was an ordinary man who was wounded in the war, though not seriously. Afterwards, went back to Civvy Street, worked in a plumbing business for the rest of his career, retired at 65, um, had, a, had a seemingly very ordinary life until sort of something like the age of 100 when he became one of the dwindling number of veterans of the war. And yeah. he wrote his autobiography, I think, at the age of 107, and um, as, as well as being one of the oldest published authors. And this is an extract from it that was read at his funeral. We came across a lad from A Company. He was ripped open from his shoulder to his waist by shrapnel and lying in a pool of blood. When we got to him, he said, shoot me. He was beyond human help, and before we could draw a revolver, he was dead. And the final word he uttered was, mother. I remember that lad in particular. It's an image that has haunted me all my life, seared into my mind. I can't help feeling that a lot of people today need to read that book. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's sadly, that's a whole separate... Uh... That's a whole separate discussion, isn't it? And the, the subject of kind of poppy fascism. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated issue. There's a case for arguing, of course, that now that we've lost our connection to the First World War, that it, it, that's the point when it just passes into mythology in a way, and you can put whatever particular meaning you want to on it, unfortunately. Yes. That's why it's important to listen to the voices of people who were there. Mm. But it's strange, isn't it? It must have been odd for somebody like Harry Patch to be... I don't... This is going to sound patronising, it's not meant to, but I can't sort of assemble my thoughts quickly enough to... But to live a very, very ordinary life and to become notable by virtue of not dying. You know, normally the people that write their autobiographies... write, write bi Sorry, write, write their biographies because they've... They've done something, and what he did was was remarkable. And certainly, his experience in the First World War was 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 horrible. But if he hadn't not died, he would have just been another First World War veteran. If that makes sense. No, no, I understand what you mean. Yeah. I think the the extraordinary part comes where he was able to tell you to to your face. Mm. He died eleven years ago. Um, we would have i mean i was in my late 20s then um you were a couple of years older only um and the idea that someone would be able to tell you right then to your face what it was like mm. and speak from personal experience the idea that that history is a living thing and it prevents these things as you say from passing into mythology it keeps them real in the same way as knowing that the last American Civil War widow mm. died as recently as a couple of months ago, that she, in turn, would have been able to tell you stories she heard firsthand about what it was like fighting uh, against the Confederate Army. These, yeah. are the, these are the parts of history, I think, that are overlooked. It's the stories of the ordinary people. It's not that the the big picture isn't important because obviously it is but the the study of history must incorporate how it impacts the, the participants mm. George MacDonald Frazier wrote his uh, the guy that wrote the Flashman books 
wrote his biography, it's called Courted Safe Out Here. And that starts off really remarkably, because it starts with an extract from the official regiment. He, he fought out in the Far East, and it starts with a, an official record of a battle from... Uh, from the sort of the military history and it talks about there was a brief engagement at such and such a point and uh, there was an exchange of fire and a tank was destroyed and then it cuts to his rec uh, then he immediately starts writing his recollections and he goes I remember that tank burning and it's just a remarkable transition between the two mm. the note uh, here on uh, Wikipedia at the in November 2004 at the age of 106 Patch met Charles Kunz, a 107-year-old French Alsatian veteran who had fought on the German side at Passchendaele. Patch was quoted as saying, I was a bit doubtful before meeting a German soldier. Herr Kunz is a very nice gentleman, however. He is all for a united Europe and peace, and so am I. Kunz had brought along a tin of Alsatian biscuits, and Patch gave him a bottle of Somerset cider in return. As I yeah, say, she's... small stories are yeah. just as important. Yes, it reminds me, I mean, obviously Spike Milligan's version has a punchline because, of course, Spike Milligan met up with one of the German soldiers who took a pot shot at him in North Africa, I think it was. And I think he ended up with a photograph of the guy that was signed, Dear Spike, sorry I missed you. <laughs> the, um, the film continues with uh, the soldiers ready to fight embedded in the ruins of a building. But we don't see the battle itself, we don't see the enemy at all. We don't get the idea of... We're not presented with war as being any kind of fight. It's just people being killed. Mm. You don't get the... You never... I suppose actually you... You never get the kind of like the Zulu shots, do you? The big sweeping battlefield. I mean, partly possibly because there just wasn't the budget for it. Um, but no, you, what what you get is a very very odd close up uh, series of sequences, and this is again this is where the sergeant's there, isn't it? And he's telling them to hold their fight. He's telling them given that keeps giving the command five five rounds rapid. Hmm. Yeah, there is then a cut to an ambulance, and it turns out the ambulance isn't a truck, but it's a train with wounded men returning to England. Mm. One uh, the, of the Smiths has been badly injured and his, he's blanked by his girlfriend. And um, there are cries from the people nearby saying, oh, don't worry, you'll soon be back at the front. Yeah, because of course that's really what you want to hear, isn't it? Yeah. And the, um, the NCOs tell them to set good examples for everyone else as they parade out uh, singing... Pack up your troubles. And again, and sorry, I, I, I kind of feel a bit guilty intimately because I keep trying to draw, I keep drawing parallels from this to kind of more uh, pop culture stuff, and it feels a little bit inappropriate in this case. But that, of course, is the song that the soldier sings in uh, Sapphire and Steel Adventure Two, isn't it? And he's. Yes. Isn't he the soldier that was supposedly shot at, ele at Armistice time? 11 minutes after Armistice 11 time. 11 minutes after, that was it. And again, as I say, in terms of this film casting a long shadow over pop culture, it's in, I know that um, 
PJ Hammond was writing at this time because he was writing for Ace of Wands. And I can't help wondering if this is this something he would have seen. Quite probably, um, yeah. Or yeah. at least he would definitely have been aware of it. I think that's the thing is if you were working in the media at the time with all the actors that were in this, you would you would have absolutely been aware that this was going on. And yeah, I just find it it pleases me to sort of to, to kind of make a connection between this and Sapphire and Steel Adventure too, but it may just be a coincidence, of course. I think perhaps the play might have been casting a longer shadow for yeah. write, for writers. Yes, that's true. Uh, but the next scene is at a society event where there's a string quartet performing and um, uh, we have Dirk Bogard's one scene. Is this the bit where they're all talking about, oh, well, you know, I've decided not to serve any um, German wine for the duration? and yes. I, this was the bit that I thought tipped over slightly too much into heavy-handedness because they're all, all the characters in the scene are all so ghastly. It just... I found it totally believable. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, and that, oh, 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 Olivia's in mourning. Oh that's, oh, that's such a shame. But the men at the front really adore the war. For them, it's like a picnic. Mm. And, oh, oh Stephen is trying to get the contract for making the tin hats, you know. Yes, and they're cross because one of their um, iron ore factories has been bombed or something, aren't they? Yeah. I don't know. I, as I say, I found it very... I, I found it a bit overstated, but, you know, obviously other, other opinions are available. And um, they, send, they send their... Um, they've got somebody at the front, haven't they? And they keep sending in bottles of Nerve Tonic, whatever the hell Nerve Tonic is. Oh, it's, um, you know, like um, uh, Ginkgo Biloba. God. Um, or St John's Wort. Yeah, the monster energy drink, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very much the Red Bull of its time. <laughs> um, but they go out to watch the fireworks and that transitions to uh, the ray lights mm. um, over the trenches. And it's Christmas. Yeah. So we have the Christmas truce of 1914, which is something I feel you have to be very careful about mm. showing. Yeah. If you if you get this wrong, I get very upset. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the recent Doctor Who, well, it's not recent, a few years ago now, Doctor Who Christmas special, which depicted the Christmas truce and uh, muffed it <laughs> in, oh, really? in, in in a way that really annoyed me. How come? Um, I felt that it wasn't taken seriously enough. Right, and one can be facetious and say, "Well, it's Doctor Who. What do you expect?" But Doctor Who can take things seriously when they need to. They've done historical stories in the past that have taken major historical events and treated them with the gravity that they deserve. Hmm. And I felt that it was a bit too... It might have also been the quality of the rest of the script, which I felt was a bit lacking, and adding the Christmas truce in felt like a bit of a tacked-on plea for credibility. Yeah, it's one of those things... It's a very... I'm not saying this film does it, and I'm quite happy to go out on a limb now and say this is the bit of the film that made me cry. I can understand why. It it boils it's... down the story, and it has to be something quite short, mm. because this is just one segment of a much larger mosaic. It's the bit where the British troops are listening to the German soldiers singing their carol. Um, and yeah, I couldn't really tell you why it got to me, but but it absolutely got to me, but... That's the trouble, of course, is that the whole Christmas truce thing has become a very... 
easy thing to reach for if you want a bit of chocolate box sentimentality. And you can do the whole thing of, oh, look, in the midst of all the horror, there was this moment of stillness and bloody... And, yeah, I'm... I... I, I don't know. I'm... I'm, I, I'm not... Again, a lot of my thoughts on this are very, very poorly formed and thought out, so I'm not sure I can really expli explain it sometimes, but I... I'm not always happy with the way it's reached for as this kind of wonderful moment in the midst of all the horror. Hmm. If anything, there's something about the fact that people stopped shooting for one day and then just went back to fighting just seems more horrible, frankly. The fallout from the Christmas truce was... Um, it, in the film, it stated that um, those who let, who did leave their trenches had the, all their leave cancelled. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that some of the... Um, punishments were more severe. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a little bit later on, although it's never explicitly referred to, where they're talking about an Easter... It's where they're having the prayer parade and they're talking about the Easter push and they're going to be fighting on Good Friday or something. And there's that, that sense that, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the soldiers were never given a chance to do something like this again because they were all, there was always an attack going on or something like that. My sense was that the, for want of a better phrase, the Christmas spirit is so embedded in culture in Western Europe mm. that it short-circuited the notion of war. Yeah. And it restored a sense that the natural relationship between people is one of amicable brotherhood yeah i mean that, the night of 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 it's it's more normal for people to cheerily greet each other and share a gift on a special occasion than yeah. feel hostile or aggressive towards your own neighbor yeah there's uh, i mean the nice thing about this sequence as well going back to what you were saying about the belgian uh, sequence as well, where it, it shows that that what it was like for the other side. It's nice in this sequence that it's the Germans that are allowed to start the Christmas truce. It's not the British soldiers that stand up first. They're responding to the German soldiers doing it to them. And that's historically accurate. Okay. The the truce actually happened right up and down the line, all over all over the Western Front. It happened spontaneously and. Historically, more often than not, it was on the German side mm. that um, the first approach was made. And what I really like the choice of in the film is the hymn they sing is one that is recognisable in both German and English, Silent mm. Night, which is very commonly sung in Germany as well, Heilige Nacht, Stille Nacht rather, sorry. Um, so the choice of one that works in either language and is, and is common yeah. in either language I thought was a good choice, rather than a more specifically German hymn yes. or an English one translated into German. Well, the other thing that's that's nice as well is that then when it's the British term to reciprocate, they immediately go on to sing an incredibly crass song. Um, Christmas Day in the Cookhouse. That was it, yeah, yeah. It reminds me again of um, another bit in one of the Spike Milligan war memoirs where one of the people in his troop goes off to a harem and... I'm quoting here, so apologies for the slightly, uh, this is for the language that goes a bit below the, the, the waterline. But he says that he went to a harem and this lady came up to him and she sang him this exotic song. And he said, feeling you ought to reciprocate, he sang her a chorus of the Lambeth Walk and got stuck up her. 
I th- doesn't he also try demonstrating the Lambeth Walk, which just baffles them all further? <laughs> Probably, yes. Yeah. There's another story I remember from from his memoirs where um, they're on leave in a a Malfi. Oh yeah. And um, Spike and his friends are with a, a one of their Jewish comrades, and they're served this beautiful platter of seafood. And before before anyone can do anything, the Jewish soldier just tucking in, yeah. and be, be, and beating his breast, saying, "Mother, forgive me, but eat, Joe, eat." <laughs> no, they're terrific. I mean, obviously, second Second World War rather than First World War, but they're fantastic books. It's one of the few books I can think of about the Second World War that actually gets across that real sense of comradeship that you do get from being in a in a group of people. Um, and it's, it's it's like Harry Patch. It's someone who mm. uh, their ser- their service did not make them special. What what happened after they yeah. fought made them of historical interest. But their stories are that of the ordinary service person, yeah. the ordinary soldier. That's what's important. And the fact that Spike goes through the whole book, making it absolutely clear how much he hates the, most of the officers. Yes. And that his his experiences and his relationships with his fellow uh, ordinary men and NCO is that's what was important for him. Mm. There were you know one or two officers who it, he did like and who were good leaders. Yeah, but most of them seem to be just lunatics. A lot of them. The, the, there's a guy that's only ever referred to as Jumbo Jenkins, and he sounds like. A hangover from the First World War, frankly. He sounds like the kind of <sighs> war is a game sort of officer. Because at one point he, he assigns, he assigns when Spike's starting to suffer from shell shock, he assigns him to sit by the, the guns. Doesn't he say something like the sound of the guns will boost your morale? Yes. Yeah. Um, he also, um, when this is after he, Spike had been wounded. Um, physically, his injury wasn't serious, but it destroyed him psychologically. Mm. Um, and he, uh, ha- having having been injured, he then ran back to the command post, uh, and he was court-martialed for that and yeah. um, uh, lost one of his stripes. And fact- and Milligan says in his book that he was, <laughs> if if this had been the First World War, I have absolutely no doubt the bastard would have had me shot. Yeah, funnily enough, that that was the bit I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. Like he did get his stripe back. I think he was actually promoted to sergeant by the end of the war. I don't. Or, um, no, no, not sergeant. Um, full bombardier. Because he'd yeah. been lance lance bombardier was was busted down to gunner and then got both stripes back um, mm. when he was um, in the entertainment corps. Hmm. So the um, the different soldiers meet on no man's land on Christmas Day, and they just have a really friendly. Pleasant time. They talk about you know back home. You know they've got girls waiting for them, and the German soldier offers the the Brits some schnapps, and yeah. the, uh, one of the Smith brothers offers him British uh, Scottish schnapps, I think, which is whiskey. Yeah, and it and turns out one of the German soldiers has got a girl in Sussex or something. Yeah. Suffolk, I think. Yeah, Suffolk. Yeah, and the German soldier says, "We will never shoot again unless you start." At which point the British guns start shooting. Yeah, back at the pier, um, soldiers are getting ready to ride on the little toy train. Yes, being uh, recruited by the photographer, and it's the last of the Smith brothers, um, of the Smith, one of the Smith cousins. 
Bertram, yeah. who is the one officer in the family, who gets on the little toy train that goes around in the circle, and we get another song, which people might recognise, Goodbye. Mm. And Although, it's, 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 a, it's the last of the upbeat songs, I think. Yes, it, it kind of is, isn't it? And even then there's an edge to it, because it's one of those songs that I've obviously heard the, the chorus a lot, but I've never heard the the kind of the build-up to the chorus. And and I was kind of surprised that it says something about... it. Doesn't it talk about his pathetic words or something? Yes, you're right. And it's just an, a, a weirdly harsh way of describing... And then, of course, it goes into the goodbye, you don't cry, wipe the tear, baby dear, from your eye. And it, it's just really odd to... Knowing that jaunty chorus, and then to have the build-up to the chorus in which those words are described as pathetic is odd... Brother Bertie went away to do his bit the other day, with a smile on his lips and his lieutenant pips upon his shoulder bright and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds, and he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye, wipe the tear, baby dear, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know, I'll be tickled to death to go. Don't cry, don't sigh, there's a silver lining in the sky. Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin chin, napo... Napu Toodaloo Goodbye. And I can't, I couldn't tell you if this is one of the songs that soldiers would have sung or if this is one of the ones for the home front. There's something about that line about pathetic words that makes me think it's maybe not a home front song. Maybe not, no. But um, as he sings, the points change and the train starts heading off towards the end of the pier. The points, I should point out at this point, are changed by the photographer who oh, continues, yeah, continues to cast a presence all the way through the film. I'm he's, beginning to. He's the spectre of death, really, isn't he? He's Ares, isn't he? Yes. Um, but um, it becomes more somber as mm. as Mother Smith waves him away, and then there's a a, a hard, brutal cut mm. to her standing on the platform of an empty cavernous railway station yeah and turning and walking away yes it's not that and it, again it's another example of a very very stark cut it's a, it's a trick that the film uses a lot but it's very effective it feels like a slap in the face and normally yeah. that's a bad thing but here it does it repeatedly because it says yeah. no you have to pay attention to this i have to keep hitting you until you understand why yeah yeah stop enjoying these happy songs yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, as we say, it's a comedy without any jokes. Yeah, yeah. This isn't this. It's it's brutally satirical, and it's not meant to be funny. You're no. not meant to be enjoying this. It is not a great tagline for a film, but hmm. we then switch again abruptly to the title song from the whole production, which plays almost like a, a proto music video of this sort of party. Atmosphere in within the, the 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 pavilion ballroom, where all these. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. It, it's a recurring um, environment in the film. This this ballroom, surrounded by gauzy white curtains. And it's always shown as this is where people like Haig, and the officers. They're always shown as being distant from the battlefields aren't they except for the one occasion where one of the senior officers turns up in a trench briefly yeah they're always shown as very very removed from the action that one officer the one who talks about what a shame it is that the gas went the wrong way oh yes 
that's Bertie Smith, who was waved off on the train. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. So he's a Smith. That's why. That's why we see him in both. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yes. He's the, so he bridges the two. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a big number with, um, uh, John Mills in, involved, and, and there's there's a really unnerving bit where he's suddenly blindfolded and and trying to feel his way around the room and it's it's very so sudden and uncanny and it the the inference is obvious Mm. but just that being thrown in there in the middle of this very jolly upbeat song is quite unnerving yeah and as he's being carried around on people's shoulders as well and of course, this is the point where my Doctor Who radar starts pinging because this is the first time you spot Anthony Ainley in the background. Yes, who isn't credited? I don't think. Uh, I thought I thought he gets he does get a credit at the start because as I was looking through this incredible cast of names, it was was just in, I, I I definitely knew he was in it. Um, and of course, it was. Oh, maybe kind he of, is then. It was kind of keeping me on edge a bit because every time the scene changes, oh, I wonder if this is a bit that's got uh, got the master in it. But uh... and yet he's one of the few actors who isn't wearing a false moustache. No, this is true. Um, and of course, he would work with the editor Kevin Connor again because he's in Land That Time Forgot. Of that course, Connor directed. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, but some of the lyrics for the song: "Up to your waist in water, up to your eyes in slush." Using the kind of language that would make the sergeant blush. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't join the army? That's what we all inquire. Don't we pity the poor civilian sitting beside the fire? Oh, oh, yeah. oh! It's a lovely war. Who wouldn't be a soldier, eh? Oh, it's a shame to take the pay. As soon as Reveille is gone, we feel just as heavy as lead. But we never get up till the sergeant brings us breakfast up to bed. Yeah, and this and is. It's, a, it's like, just making a mockery of the whole thing. Yeah, and this definitely not a song that would have been sung in music halls. Certainly not. No. Let me cut to the trench, and then we have the Gas Last Night song. Oh, yeah. Yes. Gas last night and gas the night before. Going to get gas tonight if we never get gassed anymore. When we're, ga- when we're gassed, we sick as we can be, because phosgene and mustard gas is much too much for me. They're warning us, they're warning us. One respirator for the four of us. Thank you, lucky stars, that three of us can run, so one of us can use it all alone. But it's of course, that... um, respirators didn't work against mustard gas, did they? I don't know, to be honest. I don't I mean, think obvi- they did. Obviously, that line about thank, thank you, lucky stars, that three of us can run is incredibly bleak. Yeah, because the other ones had his legs shot off, probably. Cousin Bertie comes to visit them in the trenches. Um, and, uh, as I say, he apologises for the wind-changing direction so that mm. the, the British got gassed by their own weapon. And he also says that they need to um, smarten the trench up a bit, particularly remove that dead body in the parapet. Yes. But um, his cousin says, actually, we can't, because that leg is um, holding up the parapet itself. It's a supporting limb. We'll cut it off, then. And you think, yeah, that, that, that leg belonged to a person. Mm. And, uh, I, and this... I'm not saying that I, you know, because it's obviously it's a it's one of the things of this film that it's it's strayed away from from any sort of blood or gore or anything. But you never actually see a shot of the limb that they're talking about, do you? No, I don't think so. You don't. I suppose they couldn't work out a way to not make it look grotesque. 
Um, it would it would have been too unpleasant. I mean, there is yeah. there is there is the line to cap the scene, which is well, I'm gonna have to find somewhere else to hang my equipment now. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, you could almost introduce it by someone having hung their hat on it. Yeah. And it, I mean, as I say, it's again a comedy with no jokes. That's quite funny, but that's mm. definitely not the kind of humour that they want to go for in the film because it's it's laughing at the bleakness of it. No, this is not funny. No, this is not a joke. This is serious. Um, there's a formal event at the uh, ballroom, and um, we see a bit of the intrigue uh, at the top brass level. Because uh, Sir John French is being replaced by um, Haig. That's it, yes. I think also by this point, Kitchener, who'd been Secretary of State for War, has died. Because it's mentioned um, that he went to Paris in his full uniform, even though he is no longer a military officer. Oh, that's right. And it's just, again, it's that... um, It's... It, it, it's it, it, in some ways I preferred this to the earlier scene where I thought it was all just a little bit heavy-handed. Whereas this one, I, I think that the way that they're very, they're very dismissive of Kitchener because he wore his uniform even though he wasn't entitled to or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And they're all vaguely that that's obviously considered to be beyond the pale. Um, but they're also very dismissive of Haig, who apparently is a bit of a, a washout. Mm. but he's friends with people in very high places. So he's basically got the job because of networking, as we would yes, call it now. Yes, who he knows, yeah. Mm. Again, doesn't date, does it? And that ties in as well, then. is it? There's a song coming up in a minute, the Australian soldiers sing it, about oh, yes. one... One lieutenant leaps over. No, it's not lieutenant, is it? It's like somebody leaps over another officer's back or something. One staff officer. I'm trying to remember how the tune goes now. Yeah. One, one staff officer jumped right over another staff officer's back, and another staff officer jumped right over that other staff officer's back. A third staff officer jumped right over two other staff officers' backs, and a fourth staff officer jumped right over the other staff officers' backs. Yes, they that's... were only playing leapfrog. Yeah, that's the uh, one. It's yes. very it's very hard to sing, by the way. I know. I mean, I, I was I was listening. To, I mean, I'm impressed that you had. You, you, I, I'm no no retakes, listener. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to say you won't be. I won't be joining you in singing on this one. Um, but uh, yeah, even just watching the Australian troops singing it, I kind of felt. I don't quite know. My throat hurt in sympathy or something because it's a real mouthful. It is. But I assume, um, of, all, of all the songs in this are authentic troop yes. songs, aren't they? Um, everything, all the songs are authentic period songs. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just, just uh, fascinating. And it took me a while with that one. I don't think I really... It, it took me a while to kind of to work out the... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not the metaphor exactly of yes, the, yeah. The, the sense the song's trying to convey. Yeah, perhaps. that they were only playing leapfrog, but you could believe that it's just, as you say, it's Haig and French scrambling for position, and yet yeah, he's in front now, he's in front now, he's in... Yeah. It's, it's... I think it's everywhere behind the lines where they're separated from the actual business of fighting mm. and dying. It's careerism. Yes. Well, there's the terrible old joke, isn't there, about somebody who... 
gets is being shelled and just starts running and is in a panic and runs away from the trenches and just runs and runs and runs and he's stopped um, and they say what are you doing he said that the, the shelling was just awful I just had to run away and the, 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 the person he's talking to says that's no excuse for cowardice and salute when you talk to a general and the guy goes a general blimey I didn't realise I'd run that far <laughs> yeah doesn't surprise me no and the funny thing is that jokes existed in various forms down the decades. The latest version I ever heard it told about was um, a police officer in the Brixton riots. So there's always been... It, it's just, as the years have gone past, it's changed, but there's always that sense that there's the people at the front and there's the people behind the lines, and sooner or later... Yeah. And the, the people more, behind the lines are safely behind the lines. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly, yes. Um the uh, formal event ends as the various characters have their carriages uh, called for them. And it mm. cuts from that to a, co- a cart full of cross markers being transported along a road by a row of telegraph wires. And we get another song, Hush, There Goes a Whiz Bang. Yeah. Uh, hush, here comes a whiz bang. Hush, here comes a whiz bang. Now you soldier men get down these stairs, down in your dugouts and say your prayers. Hush, here comes a whiz bang. And if it's making straight for you, you'll see all the wonders of no man's land if a whiz bang hits you. Which I think again ties into Blackadder. It's about the mm. line of what to do if you stand on a landmine, which is jump two hundred feet in the air and scatter yourself over a wide area. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, Blackadder goes forth is basically this, but with jokes. Yeah, it's funny. Blackadder. I, I was thinking about this last night. I, uh, the fourth series of Blackadder is probably the one I've watched the least. Because really? at the time, I remember thinking it was a, a bit of a case of diminishing returns. But I don't know. I remember, I remember it being shown at the time, and there was a vague sense that it was in bad taste. My dad had been a very, very enthusiastic Blackadder fan, but he sort of thought that setting the fourth series in the First World War was a step too far. I don't know if it was because there were still people alive who had fought in the First World War and, uh, you know, and the feeling was that in some way it was mocking their experiences. But, uh... I honestly don't think it is. I think it's extremely sympathetic. Mm. And its attitude is very much in line with there was a lovely war. That the The people at the front are fighting and dying for something that they don't understand or is completely alien to them. Yeah. And the people who are making the decisions are safely behind the lines enjoying roast dinners every night. Well, you get... I mean, again, you, you can... There's, a, there's virtually a, a connection between the two in that Douglas Haig's strategically brilliant plan to make his army walk very, very slowly towards the enemy. And, of course, Blackadder's line about, what is it, Douglas Haig's plan to move his drinks cabinet three feet closer to... To Berlin. Berlin. Yeah. Yes, and saying, well, um, about going over the top, says, well, it's... <laughs> same plan we tried last time and the 17 times before that says yes exactly and that's the last thing they will expect (laughs) yeah and the way it's able to fold in various aspects of the war like the royal flying corps and concert parties and espionage all into this one group of characters Mm. um in a way that's obviously completely unrealistic but justified by the fact that it's 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 a piero show in the same way that the um original stage production was yeah and it ends with everyone dying off screen. Yes. And poppies. I think it's 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 
<laughs> it's as though the legacy of Blackadder Goes Forth is so great that it's completely stamped out everyone's memory of this film. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I wonder if that might be it. I, th- I think it's almost a fair exchange, but it's yeah. a shame that there isn't enough room for both. Yeah, yeah, there could be room for both. I suppose the trouble is as well that if you're going to do... Because obviously we've just been through the... Uh, I can't. I, I don't really want to sit here and count on my thumbs. What would what would twenty eighteen have been the hundredth anniversary? There you go. How's that yes. for maths under pressure? <laughs> um, we've just been through the hundredth anniversary of the of Armistice, and if you're doing that, you are going to put together a very kind of sober selection of documentaries and um, respectful programs and things. You're not go, but actually there is a case for arguing that in uh, in a different time, a channel like BBC Two or BBC Four would have put together a program of All's Quiet on the Western Front, Oh What a Lovely War, Blackadder. I mean, Michael Gove would have refused to watch it, but uh, I think it would still be worth doing. Uh, in 1988, Oh What a Lovely War was repeated on BBC Two the day after the 70th anniversary of Armistice Day. Really? Yeah. Wow. Good, good for BBC Two. Saturday afternoon, strangely huh. enough, but um, yeah, twelfth of November. So uh, perhaps not now, but certainly then, mm. when there were still quite a large number of veterans alive and living witnesses, um, that was felt to be appropriate. Yeah. In the same way that the last episode of Blackadder Goes Forth went out about, I think, the same week as. Uh, the anniversary of Armistice Day, it would have of... done. and supposedly not one message of complaint. No. People th- felt that that was, uh, at the very least, not an inappropriate yeah. uh, program for that week. Unlike, say, the uh, episode of Doctor Who that ended with um, all the dead bodies of history that turned into Cybermen and climbing out of their graves, shown the day before Remembrance Sunday. Was that really the? <laughs> oh, God. We talked yeah. about that. We talked about that earlier before we started recording, yeah. and, we, and we both hate that episode a lot. Yeah. I think I, 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 I don't think I've ever, but I don't think I've said this on the podcast before. But yes, that reminds the one episode of Doctor Who that's actually made me angry. There are others that have really annoyed me, but that one I thought people are going to get really upset about this. This what? is this is really. Beyond the pale. This isn't just bad television. This is actively offensive. Yeah. Yeah, and not. Uh, yeah, yes, it is, and not necessarily, and not not even offensive in the sense of pushing, pushing boundaries that need to be pushed at. It just, I don't know. Um, as you say, just ultimately, there's just something tasteless about it. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> And completely unnecessary. Yes, yeah, I mean, not relevant to the, uh, not relevant to the plot, or not relevant to the story, or anything like that. No, it's just, I, I don't know. So, uh, having sung "Hush, Here Comes a Whizbang," also one of the characters is a Charlie Chaplin impression, which ties to Blackadder again. Yes, um, because Chaplin was becoming quite a star. But Richard Attenborough notes that Chaplin was very much a, a working class hero. He'd grown up in appalling, mm. grinding poverty. And the character of the little tramp was 
a poor working class man, lower than working class even, usually homeless, who you know it does his plucky bit and um, tries to get one over on uh, you know the 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 big yeah. the big man, and he was that's what one of the reasons that contributed to his popularity was that he was the little man fighting back against the big machine. Mm. Most obviously, later in in modern times, yeah, which, yeah, in which he's literally, you know, the the human figure fighting the huge monster of industrialization, or or becoming consumed by industrialization. It was Attenborough that went on to direct Chaplin, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that sequence with the, the them playing cha- playing at Chaplin ends with them juggling hand grenades. I think. Yeah. That really didn't seem like a good idea. Well, if one is careful. That's what, I mean, yes. Actually, of course, they would have been called Mills bombs at the time still. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Um, Haig is in a, a tower overlooking the pier. We don't kind of see what kind of tower it is yet. Um, but he's talking about how we just need one more big offensive to break through the lines. And his aide is talking about his concern for the men and there's a con- there's a a contrast between Haig's fanatical thirst for victory which is so chilling because he's so he's not he's not angry he's not no. aggressive he's just talking about th- this mass slaughter as though it is a perfectly reasonable fact of life yeah yeah he's not a fanatic about it he's just He's, he's a just dis- he's a disciple. Yeah. And the scene ends with the aide descending from the tower when it's revealed that he's, they're actually on the top of a helter skelter. Yes. And we get the next song, uh, which is the one that gave the. Uh... Uh, no, it's not. Hang on, it's not that one, is it? Long, long. There's a long, long trail of winding, which we don't actually hear in the film. I don't think. Do I don't remember hearing it. I mean, if I've got if I've got one criticism about the film, it's that it's a collection of scenes rather than um, you know. And occasionally, I have sort of sat here and struggled a little bit to go, okay, what bit comes, what song comes next? Um, but no, I think once we've gone from the they were only playing Leapfrog, then you get that weird religious. The, the 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 Friday prayers or something where the priest tells everybody that the is it the Pope has decided that it's well, I okay. Think, I, I think you've jumped past quite a large chunk. Oh, I, <laughs> oops. Um. Oh yes, I have. Sorry, you're quite right. Um, Haig talks about that there there being the divine will that um, the Allies will be victorious. Oh, is this the point where Haig outlines his master strategy that eventually it will end up with the Germans only having 5,000 troops left and the British having 10,000? Yes. Yeah. I, think that, I think that comes a little later, but yeah, he does say that. And it's again, it's said so, ca- not casually, but just this is absolutely self-evident. Mm. And f- following his comments about the attack, we then cut to the the ballroom where we have a cricket score yes up for the first day of the battle of the somme 60,000 men dead yeah in one day 
and Haig anticipates losing around 300,000. But um, these are good results because we're going to have another push next year. Yes. Oh, that's it. Yes, they keep talking about planning another big push, don't they? Yeah. Which, yeah. again, goes back to the Blackadder's line about doing the same thing they've done 17 times before. Hmm. Um, Irish soldiers have arrived and they've not had any food for two days, but Haig says that that's all right because the enemy is weak and demoralised. And a group of soldiers are sheltering in a cell hole. Yes. And there's a little cluster of poppies growing nearby. And one of the Smith brothers picks them and hands them one by one to his other comrades as they uh, climb out and walk off into the fog. Yeah, and this is the. I think this is this is for, for me. This is the point where the symbolism of the, the poppy as 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 death, becomes really obvious because yes, he gives, and again, you never see anyone die. But I think the first is it is this the point where somebody says, "I'm going to go and have a go at that machine gun post." No, yeah. he send it. He, they're being shelled by their own side or something, aren't they? And he wants to send a runner back to tell them to to not shell this bit so he says you're the fastest runner and he gives somebody a poppy you see them run out of frame and then there's a kind of uh, there's a rattle of machine gun fire and then he looks for somebody else to send Mm. and this is the bit oddly enough that reminds me of um i think it's in the meaning of life where there's a group of british soldiers in a in the first world war and they've got somebody a clock Yes, they want to give their commanding officer a gift, so they give him a grandfather clock. Yeah, but Back I could the... I couldn't really tell you if I mean obviously there's the the, the the Monty Python team got yards of material out of that whole kind of stiff upper lip thing, so it may not necessarily be that they're specifically referring to oh look what a lovely war, but just that general sort of tone of you know. Noel Coward looking brooding on the deck of a battle cruiser or something. It's yeah. all. Noel Coward is the character in Meaning of Life as well, of course. Oh, of course he is, isn't he? Yes, he gets to sing a song at one point. Yes. But I think, having said that, the Pythons do seem to have tapped into something because hmm. that sense of um, uh, that that anti-establishment and that 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 something something very specific that's just hmm. on the tip of my mind. Hit at the same time as this, they yeah, they tapped into some. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why they were so successful is connecting with something in the same vein as Oh What a Lovely War. And Oh What a Lovely War was able to attract this amazing cavalcade mm. of the greatest British actors, these very establishment people. Yeah, for an for an anti-establishment film, yeah. And the Pythons, who were all Oxford and Cambridge men, apart from Terry Gilliam doing the same thing. There seemed mm. to be this this anti-establishment from within the establishment coming out at the same time, as though the, the, the tide really was changing. Yeah. Yes, I think that was it. And certainly I think that's... Uh, it's Maggie Smith's film... Uh, ugh, Maggie Smith's song at the start of the film, um, the one about I'll make a soldier out of you, or whatever it's called. There's something about the jaunty tempo of that song. It really reminded me of... Um, the kind of spoof songs that Eric Idle used to do, like when he does the Money song. Yes. They, again, they're all in the very, very similar kind of musical tradition. But uh, very musical, very vaudeville. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Vaudeville is the word I was looking for. Um, on the pier, 
the photographer is leading a Salvation Army band playing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And we have an appearance by Vanessa Redgrave Hmm. as one of the Pankhursts reading a letter from George Bernard Shaw and speaking against the war and the audience in return is very critical and dismissive and it reminds me of the the media war that we see now of the the press and the control of the rich and powerful drip feeding lies into the ears of the majority readership but there's also interesting there's the same thing that that, of course because the the mistake that Sylvia Pankhurst's character in the film makes is she starts to attack the crowd. Yes. Um, rather than... And, of course, that just turns the crowd... Yeah, the crowd are heckling her. She starts to attack the crowd, and that just turns the crowd against her even more and, and, and makes them even less willing to listen to what she's got to say. And, yes, as you say, that does... For some reason, that reminds me of Twitter. Are you going to say cancel culture? Oh, God, no. I, I, again, I, I don't claim to have um, any well-thought-out things. I have fundamentally no problem with cancel I'm not going to rail against cancel, cancel culture like Rowan Atkinson. I, I disagree with him on this. Yeah, but, I mean, if, if Rowan Atkinson gets cancelled, who's going to make the next Johnny English film? Yeah, who's going to make Man vs. B, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's expressed concern in the past about... Um, limitations on free speech affecting um, satirical material yeah. and that. But I thought, yeah, okay, but when was the last time you were actually satirical, Rowan, with your and, own material? And the other question I would want to make in those circumstances is what jokes does he want, what jokes does he want to make that he thinks he can't? What does, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Stuart Lee's routine about making fun of Islam um, where he comes up with some incredibly complicated and highfalutin routine about the mechanics of the religion itself, and then and, and then speaking for the audience, he goes, "Yes, that's all very well, Stuart, but when we said make fun of Islam, we were talking about making fun of their hats." <laughs> and that's yeah, that that's the feeling I get is is that all these people that that, that decry the lack of ability to sort of make what jokes do they want to make about? Um, Islam or, you know, sort of gay people or uh, ethnic minorities. Because mm. they, they they bemoan the fact that they can't make them, but they don't say what they... They, they never... I, I don't understand what, what they feel they're missing the opportunity to say. A while ago, when the um, James Bond films were being shown again on um, Saturday nights, uh, I wrote on Twitter a few times criticising the early films for mm. how dated they are now. I feel they're... Yeah, and in, in terms of their uh, attitude to women and other races, I do think the early films are now looking very dated. Yeah, and some people uh, respond and saying, "Oh, this is terrible! Oh, you know, you, know, you can't, you can't even it's political correctness gone mad. You can't even watch James Bond films anymore." And I said, "You know that they're on every Saturday night." <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know they're out on DVD. They're on TV literally every month. Yeah, if you want to watch a Bond film, you can. But I think pretending that they haven't dated at all when they obviously have is completely ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Even the good 60s Bond film has the um, Bond girl being punched in the face by her own father as and that being portrayed as a good thing. 
Which one is that? That's so, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service in the action sequence towards the end. Diana Rigg gets punched in the face by her father to knock wow. her out, to, to avoid her getting involved in the battle. And I think, yeah, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to punch her in the hmm. face to get her out of there. Just drag her into the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's 60s, so. Yeah. So there's the, um, uh, as Pankhurst is being chased away, um, we see two soldiers on leave. And they've got their own song, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. I don't want to be a soldier. I don't want to go to war. I'd rather stay at home around the streets to roam and live on the earnings of a lady typist. I don't want to bang out in, in my belly. I don't want my bollocks shot away. I'd rather stay in England, in merry, merry England, and fornicate my bleeding life away. Hmm. I suspect that this is the first appearance in a major studio production of the word bollocks. Yeah, quite possibly. And I think the only reason they got away with it is because the American studio didn't know what it meant. <laughs> yes, yeah. Because um, the list of songs I'm looking at, I think, is out of order because we get the scene in a French bar, I think. Yes, that's what I was. I, I think that's what's coming up next. Is that um... the moon shines bright on Charlie Chaplin? Yeah, and then oh, a and then a French song, Adieu la yes. vie. Yeah, I think that's it. Yes. So the, oh, the, mood, the mood in the film now becoming very melancholy mm. and downbeat. And then we have the scene of the, the Anzacs yeah, singing, guess... as it's mentioned, that there's also now a shortage of coffins. That's it, yes, they're going up to, they want to be careful going up to um, Apes, isn't it? Well, and they want to be careful there because of the shortage mm. of coffins, yes. And this, I think, is where I, so you, you was saying, saying that we'd jump to chunk of it, I think this is my fault, this is where I was... I, I, I was talking about the leapfrog song because this is actually where the leapfrog song comes in. Is is here and not earlier when when you've got Haig and uh, French having their discussion about um, replacing each other. Mm. But as as the Anzacs sing, you see that the the cadre of officers following Haig are skipping in time to the music yes. and playing leapfrog, and it ends with them going into the building, and we transition to the the ballroom again hmm. and the a final synchronized leapfrog by Haig over one of his other officers as he reaches to answer the phone and that's a it's beautifully timed and choreographed because it's hmm. i mean we don't talk about the choreography because it's not a it's not a musical in that sense there are no. songs but there's no there's very little dancing or what there is is like at the the ball earlier in the film where it's you know it's obviously going to happen within that environment yeah but it's it's beautifully timed there that he does perfectly timed leapfrog reaches the phone and gets it just as the the music ends. Yeah. I think John Mills' contribution to the film should not be underestimated. He was pretty mm. much one of the prime movers in getting the whole thing off the ground and acting as the the closest thing to a hate sink in Hague. Yes. Um he I think he delivers a great performance. Lawrence yeah, he Olivier, is. Lawrence Olivier and Mary Wimbush, who plays Mother Smith were both BAFTA nominated, but I think the best overall performance in the film is John Mills. He's very, very good. And again, in terms of this thing of actors having... I'm obviously aware that John Mill has had a huge and very, very distinguished career, but of course the only thing I'm really aware of him as being in is Quatermass 4. <laughs> um, and... Yes, oh yes, that, that does sound like you. 
Yeah, no, and uh, I can only apologise for, you know, um, you're, you're interested in what you're interested in. But, uh, of course, Nigel Neal didn't want him in that because he didn't think that he could deliver the kind of performance. And, and it's that thing of going, yeah, Nigel, you were definitely wrong on that one. John Mills was, John Mills was a, a, a truly great actor who yeah. I think was, was pigeonholed as being in a lot of war movies. I mean, mm. If you watch Ice Cold and Alex, which is possibly my favourite World War II film, it's not a film about fighting. It's not a film about um, victory over the enemy. It's about victor- victory over being put in uh, appalling, seemingly hopeless situations and getting out of it by forgetting differences and working together. Yeah, where one one of the the group trying to get through the desert turns out to be a spy, but he he works as hard as everyone else to get them to get them out, and his work is repaid by the others lying about him being a spy, claiming that he's simply a captured officer, so that when they get back to Allied headquarters, he's taken prisoner rather than shot. Yeah. I don't know if that was whether whether that was one of the reasons it, he did. In a weird sort of way, he did he did kind of end up being slightly Mister Second World War film, didn't he? Yeah. And I don't know whether that was kind of one of the things that, that in the end his career was just a bit overlooked because. And he's a. I mean, we covered one of his other films very recently on the podcast, Ryan's Daughter, for which he won his Oscar. Of course, yeah, yeah, um, that's right. For which he plays a um, extremely caricatured, mentally ill man. Oh, well, <laughs> it was the 70s. Yeah, but you can't go to Ireland and then play uh, a caricatured Irish village idiot and not expect some form of consequences, because no. it, in, re- in retrospect, that performance does, is a very good performance, but it's really not appropriate. Mm. And it was, I think, the first one he made after this one. Blimey. So he was on a bit of a tab trying to kind yeah. of refashion his image. And yeah, that, yeah, and and Quatermass as well, which is a very grim, doom laden mm. production, and he's very good. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a pity that it's obviously it's a, a tragedy that he uh, lost his sight in later life, but it very much limited the types of roles that he was able to take. Mm. I think one of his last films was the Mister Bean film. Really, grave. I know his actual last film I remember was Bright Young Things. Oh, okay. The, the Stephen Fry adaptation of Vile Bodies. Hmm. And he's in one brief scene where he's at a party with some younger people and they offer him cocaine and he takes some. And apparently he was on set quoted as saying, Do you know, this is my very first drugs film. <laughs> if only he'd been Renton. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, that that would have been... Um, the, I'm, I'm sure Guy Ritchie could have cast him in something. Well, by that point, he was about 90 and blind. But um, if only Guy Ritchie had been around in the 50s when um, he would have been making films like Kosh Boy and um, the awful truth about gangland violence and shooters and such. Yeah. To give it its full title. At the um, church parade, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is announced as having absolved people of the sin of war on Sabbath. Mm. Um, that Catholics can eat meat that um, the Dalai Lama has given his blessing to the war so it's I think it folds back to the um, the Christmas truce yeah that no that you, now even religion is not an excuse for 
not wanting to kill people from another country. No, religion's fine with war at this point, isn't it? Yeah. And um, in fact, they, they can't. There's a call for praying for success in the upcoming attack. Let's let's hope that God's British and he kills just as many Germans as we want. Yeah, I can't. Do you remember what? Because the, 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 there's a song, and it's it's quite effective at this point, isn't it? Because it's 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 one of these points. It's um, I never know the correct musical term, but it's where different people are singing different songs to the same tune, and you've got the soldiers' song, and then you've kind of got the is it the nuns or something? And and some people are singing a very respectable song, and and, and the soldier is singing something a bit. It's not one about barbed wire or something, is it? No, that the, comes the, the, the hymn they're singing is What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's it, yes. But the army song is When This Lousy War Is Over. That's it, When This Lousy... Yeah, yeah. And again, I just like the contrast of the fact that it just cuts between, between the two songs. It's very, mm. again, very, a very nice little sequence. And Haig, too, is on his knees on the Helter Skelter mm. praying for the, before the battle. And the field hospital is braced for a nightmare. Yeah. One of the um, the hospital sisters, I think, is one of the Smith family. Yeah. Played by Angela Thorne, who later from um, To the Manor Born, I think. Oh, uh, okay. And she prays for peace, as in the distance you can hear the sound of gunfire. And that cuts then to um, a group of soldiers digging a hole and singing, I want to go home, I want to go home, I don't want to go in the trenches no more, where whiz-bangs and shrapnel, they whistle and roar, take me over the sea where the alley man can't get me, oh my, I don't want to die, I want to go home. And then, as they dig deeper, they suddenly stop. And there's a very eerie, uncanny pause as they're just standing there. And we cut to the pavilion their ballroom and there's another cricket score up of 244,000 men dead in the Battle of Passchendaele nearly a quarter of a million people and Haig thanks God for the success of the attack yes and of course yeah. if you haven't got the point of the film by now It's making it very easy for you, isn't it? Yes, pretty much, yeah. And the men finish covering over the hole that they've dug and march away past a series of other large holes, which it's not stated outright, but they're obviously mass graves. Yeah. And they sing the bells of hell. The bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me. And the little devils, how they sing a ling a ling for you, but not for me. O death, where is thy sting a ling a ling? O grave, thy victory. The bells of hell go ting a ling a ling for you, but not for me. I don't know who came up with that. Death, where is thy sting a ling a ling? But it's a fantastic line. I get the impression that they thought of that and then built the song around it. Yeah. But uh, it, we see the the aid played by Anthony Ainley questioning the the policy of the war of attrition and then we yeah. have Haig saying about how eventually there will be 
10,000 British soldiers, but 5,000 German, and the British will win. Yeah. And, of course, this feeds back into... Because this is 69, so this was the early day, the early-ish days of Vietnam. But wasn't this the principle that um, Vietnam was being fought on at the time? Wasn't it the Rand Corporation or somebody? They, they were running the war on the lines that, providing they killed more Viet Cong than the Viet Cong killed Americans, that, that they would automatically win. I don't know, yeah. but that does, that does sound like the kind of technocratic, inhuman approach that the Rand Corporation might adopt. I think it was. The, I think this was the, the the time of Vietnam body counts, and literally, it was just that straightforward thing. If they would go, yo, today we killed X number of Viet Cong, and there was just this assumption that yes, again, it was it was a war of attrition, um, and I, I I I I don't think. You know, it's, what am I going to do? Ask Richard Attenborough. But I don't think it's a coincidence that a film made around the same time is suddenly talking about a war of attrition in exactly the same way. I think it was. It would have certainly been in in mind. Yeah. Um, but given the that the the play start the 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 origins of the of the production are in the early sixties before yes, yeah. the fight before Vietnam fighting started. It's sort of that would that would be folded into the the overall miasma rather than mm. being any kind of d intentional direct reflection I think um, men in no man's land are preparing for a 5am push over the top where they sing if the sergeant steals your rum never mind and they leave the dugout to the sound of battle completely resigned to their situation And we get another song, Far From Far Far From Wipers. Far Far From Wipers I Long To Be, Where German Snipers Can't Get At Me. Damp is my dugout, cold are my feet, waiting for whiz bangs to put me to sleep. It's just resignation now. They're just waiting yeah. for death. Just waiting for yes, yeah, and hoping that the end of the uh, end of the war comes, yeah. Mm. There's carnage at the hospitals as we get the song Keep the Home Fires Burning, which I think is very bitterly ironic in the situation. Mm. But again, but I think, I, I know I keep, keep returning to this, but I think, again, Keep the Home Fires Burning was a song for the people at home. Absolutely. They, yeah, yeah you, you've got the, the bells of hell if the sergeant stingles your rum. And I think there's one called, one about hanging on barbed wire. Yeah. Um, and those are the songs that the soldiers were singing while the audience at home gets the sentimental kind of, oh, it's all worth it, and this is what it's all, it's all about. Yes, keeping the, keep the home fires burning. There's a silver lining through the dark clouds shining. Turn the dark cloud inside out till the boys come home. And I think this is played over just rows and just, rows and rows of coffins. It's just so sentimental bilge, isn't it? Oh yes. There's a silver lining, and yeah, honestly, that's just having just said how much I like the line about death. Where is thy sting a ling a ling? That's all. That's awful. <laughs> the, the home fires one. Well, it's the difference between people I think who are writing songs that they are doing for money and writing songs that they are genuinely invested in. Some of how they, yeah, some of how they feel, yeah. Um, women are working, making shrouds as they look at death lists, and another push is being prepared for. And then suddenly, the American army turn up. Yes, 
and they march straight into the ballroom, uh, grabbing the maps out of Haig's hands. And I think it's this moment that signifies America's arrival as a superpower. Yeah. Um, back at the front, Harry and Jack, the last, I think the last two Smith brothers left. Is that their names, Harry and Jack? That's interesting. That, that's an allusion to, is it a Wilfred Owen poem? The one about, he's not a bad man, said Harry to Jack, as they hung their way forwards with rifle and pack, but he did for them with their plan of attack. That's I'm probably just, deliberate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they find that they're back where they started, back at Mons. Yes, and then suddenly there's a red thread, isn't there? The, the, it's mentioned that the, the war will end any day now. Mm. And Jack goes into battle, and there's the sound of a gunshot, and then the red splash on, on the screen. But okay. the, cam- the, ca- the camera refocuses, and we see that it is a poppy. Yeah. And Jack emerges from the mist following a red ribbon. That's it, yes, yeah. As this, this red ribbon strung across the, the countryside, across the battlefield and into a dugout, where there's another soldier who is, in fact, the photographer. Yes. Who tells them that it's only two minutes to 11. Yeah, he took his time. He, he, that's, what, that's, that's actually his line, isn't it? Is you took your time to Jack. Hmm. And he carries on following the ribbon and it goes into the ballroom where the heads of state, not the crowned heads I don't think, are signing treaties and armistices Mm. and out again as the bell tolls and as he starts running across the countryside there are a series of fades where his uniform disappears and he loses his his weapon Mm. until he's just in his 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 undershirt and his trousers and braces and the smith women are on a hillside having a picnic where a young girl has picked a bunch of poppies as Jack watches and finally he reaches his brothers and his cousins all similarly dressed laying down in the in the grass and he joins them and as the girl turns to Mother Smith and asks Granny, what did Daddy do in the war? The Smith brothers fade away and it dissolves into white crosses and the last song comes up on the soundtrack and it's to the tune of a song called They Wouldn't Believe Me and when they ask us how dangerous it was oh we'll never tell them no we'll never tell them we spent our pay in some cafe and fought wild women night and day it was the cushiest job we ever had and when they ask us and they're certainly going to ask us the reason why we didn't win the Croix de Guerre. We'll never tell them. No, we'll never tell them. There was a front, but damned if we knew where. And the camera pulls back further and further and further mm. and further until you see thousands of white crosses covering the entire landscape. It's an astonishing final shot, isn't it? I'm not sure actually whether it doesn't perhaps overshadow the rest of the film. But it's, yeah, that, that final shot is just jaw-dropping. 16,000 crosses. <laughs> to make things 
harder. And the South Downs are clay, so they had, mm. had to have individual holes dug to plant them in. They couldn't just stick them into the ground. So it was a lot harder to, to achieve than you would expect. But the effect is... Yeah. It has impact. And the thing, the, 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 the slightly baffling thing as well is that that's 16,000 crosses. That's still less than died on the first day of the song. It's estimated that that is 0.1% of the total casualties from the First World War. Mm. Around 16 million people. And the, the picture just fades out to the, the studio logo and no end credits. Yeah. I think the film overall is a triumph. Mm. It's, despite its its uh, very sort of mosaical nature, it does have a strong, thorough, consistent vision. Um, and as a an adaptation of a stage show, you would never guess that this was originally for the for the stage. It is so cinematic. It's so big in its scale. It's using so many cinematic styles the the the, the differing environments the editing mm. the um the transitions between different locations that you could only do on film yeah yeah the use of sound, the, the use of sound as well yeah yeah it's 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 absolutely cinematic yeah but it is bitterly angry you mm. Richard Attenborough is so well known as such a sort of nice cozy cuddly fellow you know the one who played you know, Father Christmas in Miracle on 34th Street. You don't expect a film he makes to be this absolutely furious no. at the way generations were destroyed for no reason. And yet this wasn't he didn't even plan on making it originally. He he wanted to make a film about Gandhi. <laughs> and oh, this well, he- was, and although he eventually did, yeah. that was his long-term plan. But Mills brought the script to him, and Attenborough. Don't forget, this was his first feature film as director. Really interesting. Yeah. That Mills thought. Do we know? Does in the course of the commentary, does Attenborough talk about why Mills felt he was the right person for the job? I don't think he does. No, huh. but I think it, I mean, he and Mills were presumably quite good friends, and yeah. he he knew that. Attenborough was planning it long term to make this this film about Gandhi, but he knew that you know here here is a man with vision, here is a man with ambition. He is someone with a lot of experience in cinema, who knows what he's doing. So this this does feel like you know a, a hungry young filmmaker putting everything into it, because he might not get to make another movie. And then he goes on to have this long career of big epic pictures, none of which are as, I think, as invested emotionally. I think even Gandhi is is not a bad film. It has a reputation, I think, for just being very long and slow. It's hmm. fine. It makes its point, but it doesn't have the the raw emotion that Oh What a Lovely War has. Yeah, maybe it was just that right combination of you know as we've said that, that this was a time when the establishment started to eat itself you you know with the arrival of the, the monty python team and, and the the satire boom was kind of 
passed at this point, more or less, wasn't it? Because Peter Cook's nightclub had closed. But you know, maybe this maybe this is the classic example of a film that could only have been made in 1969. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, with almost 90 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, forward Joe Soap's army, marching without fear, with our old commander safely at the rear. Listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.